Uh, please open uh, your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Once again, that's Philippians 3, 12 through 16. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. You've all heard that verse before. It was written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. In it, Paul describes the transformation that will occur at his glorification when this partial knowledge, this partial understanding, which stands as an obstacle to his conformity to Christ, is finally put away. As Paul describes this transition from sinning saint to perfected worshiper, he sees it very much like the transformation that occurs as a child grows into adulthood. Children, of course, have a very different way of thinking than adults do. I think I probably feel this difference the most when I'm trying to play with my kids. My boys will ask me to play Legos with them, or Ruthie will ask me to play house, and I, I tell you, I just don't know how to do it anymore. There was a time when I could imagine and pretend and make up all kinds of games with my G.I. Joes and my micro machines. I'd play with my friends for hours on end, but now you stick a Lego guy in my hand, and I just I don't know what to make him say. I don't know what to make him do. The imagination that I once had, it just doesn't seem to be there anymore. When you think about where that difference comes from, it isn't necessarily any material difference between the child and the adult. It's true, the child's brain is still developing when they're young, but that's not really why a child plays with toys and an, and an adult doesn't. It's not because the child's mental capacity is superior to the adults. The adult still does possess the ability to play with toys, right? But they don't anymore. And if you think about why, it really comes down to two changes, both of which feed into the other. The first is a new identity. In short, as the child gets older, they begin to take on a new role in the world where they're no longer just taking from others and thinking about themselves, but where they're being asked to take responsibility both for themselves and for others. That changes the child's perspective on the world. And it causes them to think about life differently as they become an adult. The second, as Paul implies in 1 Corinthians 13, is a change in knowledge. As a person gets older, they gain wisdom, both through instruction and experience, and the result is that as they begin to gain a greater understanding of the world around them, they begin to think about the world differently. You go back to me trying to play Legos and house with my kids, and this is the difference. It's not that my brain lacks the capacity to imagine like I once did. Rather, it's that I've since lost interest in fancy, and so I'm out of practice. In some, I grew up. I began to be interested in what was real and how to engage with that in a way that was profitable. I focused my time and energy and attention there, and I became practiced in those things, and the result was that I stopped playing with toys. That's not a bad thing. 
I know our society tends to idolize childhood today. We treat it as this age of innocence, almost as this state of unfallen man. And the the result is that we almost act like children are morally or even intellectually superior to adults because they can do things like imagine. But scripturally speaking, it isn't true. Children aren't morally superior to adults, and neither are they intellectually superior. In fact, the scripture says that's why they're given parents. It's because they don't know how to live, and parents are given to show them how to live. In short, they're given parents to teach them how to stop acting and thinking like a child and to start thinking and acting like an adult. This transition from childhood to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity, it happens spiritually as well. A new believer comes to the faith, they are born again, and this means that they have spiritual life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they know how to think like a Christian. Indeed, that's what Paul's talking about over in 1 Corinthians 13. Even the Apostle Paul himself, perhaps the greatest theologian that we encounter in the New Testament outside of Jesus, even he doesn't think that he's at the point that he thinks the way he needs to think. And so he's looking forward to this day when he's glorified, when finally this happens, and finally he becomes mature in his thinking, in his way of understanding. And of course, this is partly where the church comes into play. It's there to help the new believer grow into the faith by learning how to think and act like a Christian. You look at what we do every Sunday morning when I open up the scriptures, and that's the goal, to help you grow in your thinking about what it means to be a Christian. There are these discipleship relationships that ought to be occurring in the church, and that's the point of these as well. They exist so that mature Christians can teach younger Christians what it means to think and act like a Christian. As these kinds of things occur in the church over time, and as New Christians gain experience in their walk. The result ought to be that their thinking matures. And they stop thinking like a spiritual child and begin thinking like a spiritual adult. Unfortunately, however, just as there are some people who are physically adults but who never actually mature in their thinking, it can be the same way in the body of Christ. There are some Christians who can be in the church for 20, 30, 40 years, but because they refuse to receive wisdom, because they refuse to receive instruction and be taught, they remain intellectually a spiritual child indefinitely. Is that you? Are you mature in your thinking? Or are you still playing with toys? This is the question that Paul is going to answer for us this morning, and most specifically, as it relates to suffering. As Paul writes this morning's passage, he writes as a persecuted man to persecuted men. He's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar, and he's writing to the Philippians who are themselves suffering for their faith. The Philippians have sent a financial gift to Paul to try to help him get by while he's awaiting trial, and in the course of receiving that gift, Paul has learned that they're experiencing internal dissension and even doctrinal erosion all as a result of this suffering. And so as Paul responds to thank them for their gift, 
He also takes a moment to try to encourage them to stand fast for the gospel. And the way he does this is by pointing to his example. He says, watch the way I suffer and then learn to suffer like me. Over the past couple of weeks, we've explored how Paul thinks about his suffering. The Philippians apparently lack a certain perspective on suffering, which Paul has, and this is why they're struggling so badly. And so Paul shares this perspective with them. And what he tells them is that what keeps him going is the hope of the resurrection. In short, what Paul values more than anything else is participation in the resurrection. He wants to be raised with Christ to eternal life. Well, what Paul understands is that participation in Christ's resurrection comes through union with Christ. He needs to be joined to Christ. He needs to become one with Christ since the resurrection is Christ's reward. It's the result of his perfect obedience. Paul wants to become a sharer in that reward. And so he wants to join himself to Jesus Christ. And what he understands is that part of what that means is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Union with Christ doesn't only mean participation in his resurrection. It also means participation in his death. That's because when a person is joined to Christ by faith, they become like Jesus in his righteousness. They share in his spiritual life, in his power over sin, and that means becoming like him in his righteousness. And since the world rejects Christ and his righteousness, it means that they will inevitably reject those who are made like him as well. And so union with Christ doesn't only mean participation in his life, it also means participation in his death. This is the perspective that Paul shares with the Philippians as they endure their suffering for the gospel. And this is what motivates him to endure so much for the sake of Christ. Paul understands that there's a kind of trade you have to make to follow Christ. Yes, salvation is free. You can't earn it through merit, and yet it will cost you everything. Paul gets that, and he says, that's a trade that I'm going to make every single time. You can't put a price on the resurrection. You can't put a price on your own soul. So if participation in Christ's life then means joining in his suffering now, that's a price that Paul is willing to pay. And again, this is what motivates Paul in his suffering. He's willing to accept suffering now if it means participating in the resurrection then. In fact, as I pointed out last week, this thought even fills Paul with tremendous hope and joy in the midst of his suffering. Because it means that his suffering actually points to his union with Christ. It demonstrates that he is presently in Christ. And that gives Paul confidence that he will actually join with Christ in his resurrection as well. It isn't just wishful thinking for Paul. He's experiencing the fruit of his union with Christ now, presently, through his suffering. And, then, and, that, and that means that he has, in the words of Peter, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, stored up in heaven for him. The excitement over that reward fuels Paul. And it means that he can stand trial here before Caesar and say, with the utmost sincerity, I don't know which I want more. To stay here in the flesh means I can serve you, but oh, to die. It's to depart and be with Christ, and that is far better. In this morning's passage, Paul is going to continue explaining his approach to persecution. 
He's going to show us the way a mature Christian thinks about this subject. How they process and endure it. And the question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is, am I a mature Christian on this subject? Or am I still a child in my thinking? Are there elements in Paul's thinking that are missing in mine? And if so, what am I going to do to grow up and to put away childish things? Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Once again, it's Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Paul has just said that he's considered everything lost for the sake of Christ, that he may by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. And now he says, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will also reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Once again, for several weeks now, we've been exploring Paul's perspective on suffering for the gospel. He now concludes this section by exhorting the Philippians in verses 15 through 16. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The word for mature is teleoi. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.13 when he speaks of the body attaining to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, quote, to mature manhood. It means something like complete or even perfect. For example, when Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, the word for perfect there is teleoi. And that hopefully gives you a sense of what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a Christian who has graduated, so to speak, in their faith. They've completed both the core and the advanced classes and become complete in their understanding of the faith, or at least with respect to suffering. And he's saying they think like this. At the very least, Paul wants to make sure that the Christian does not compromise their faith. That's the implication of verse 16 where Paul says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Again, there's this spirit of compromise in the church, and at the very least, Paul wants to ensure that the Philippians don't resort to that. And we've already addressed the reasons for that. There is a a bare minimum kind of thinking that a Christian must hold to remain in the faith, and at minimum, Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians don't exceed that threshold. But that said, he'd prefer that they not just do the minimum, but that they actually excel in their faith. That they wouldn't just survive, but that they would thrive in their faith. He wants them to be mature in their faith, complete. And that means thinking about their suffering in the same way that Paul does. Note the confidence here, by the way. Paul doesn't just see his perspective as one opinion among many. No, he says, let those who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, 
God will reveal that also to you. The idea is that God will tell them the exact same thing he's telling them. In other words, we sometimes say, well, you know, description isn't necessarily prescription. Just because Paul does something doesn't mean that we should necessarily go and do likewise, since the scripture often records all kinds of sins merely as a way of reporting what happened in a particular context. It's not telling us to go and copy it. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that his way of thinking on this topic is exemplary. It's mature. In fact, if you were to speak to God himself on this subject, he would tell you to respond in the exact same way that you see Paul responding here. And so if you're going to think about persecution in a mature way, in a way that the Christian ought to think about it, then you're going to think about it in the exact same way that Paul thinks about it here. So then, what does that mean? How does Paul think about his suffering? I think it can be described by at least four mental attributes. Let's go ahead and look at the first of these two attributes this week, and then we're going to come back and look at the final two next week. Once again, these are four characteristics of mature Christian thinking, and particularly as it relates to suffering for the sake of the gospel. The first attribute is this. Number one, transformed by the gospel. The mature Christian's thinking is transformed by the gospel. One of the things that happens as you get older is that your perspective on what's important changes. I think of marriage, for example. When you're young, you know, say junior high or high school, it's common to place a priority on beauty. That's often the first thing that attracts our attention with members of the opposite sex because it's the most apparent. You don't have to go dig, right, to discover if you're attracted to someone else physically. You only have to look at them. And so because it's the first thing that grabs their attention, it's not uncommon for a child to base their choice of a partner on this, on whether or not they think a, a girl is pretty or a boy is handsome. As you gain a little experience, though, maybe date a couple of people you find attractive here or there, you soon discover that beauty isn't everything. There are a lot of people who have beautiful faces and ugly hearts. And even if their heart isn't ugly per se, or at least not uncommonly ugly, right, since we're all pretty ugly once it comes down to it, but even if their heart isn't uncommonly ugly, there's still the matter of compatibility. There are people that you simply don't get along with very well. It's not that they're bad people or anything like that. You just don't share a lot in common. They're not interested in the same things, and so you have a hard time carrying on a conversation. Or you have a different sense of humor, so you tend not to laugh at the same jokes. That sort of thing. The more experience you have in a relationship, the more you begin to understand how much that sort of thing matters over beauty. After all, it's most of the relationship. Most of the time, you're just sort of hanging out with the other person. So if you, can enjoy, if you can't enjoy each other's company, it doesn't matter how much you may be attracted to them physically, you're going to have a miserable time. As you get still old, older, though, you begin to learn how little even that matters. 
This is especially true if you're a Christian, because if you're a Christian, then your highest priority is to serve Christ. And what you begin to discover is that you're not able to do that as well as you'd like if your partner isn't following Christ. Job decisions, parenting decisions, decisions about how to spend your money, how to spend your free time, the types of friends you make, the kind of house you live in, that's all determined by what you and your spouse can agree on. And what you, you and your spouse can agree on will ultimately be determined by what they think important, what their priorities are. In other words, you soon realize that your spouse has an impact on your life beyond the time that you spend with them. They literally shape every aspect of your life. At that point, it's not their personality that matters so much as their values, their convictions about what does and doesn't matter in life. This same shift in perspective often occurs with respect to career choices as well. It's not uncommon for people to prioritize a fun or rewarding career when they're young. That's because at that point in time, all they're thinking about is themselves. They're the only person that they're responsible for. And so that's as far as they're thinking about a job extends. Whatever is personally enriching and rewarding. As they get married, though, and kids enter the picture, perhaps even as they get close to middle age and they start thinking more and more about retirement, priorities shift. They begin to value financial compensation and stability. They'd still like to find a job they enjoy, but it's bumped down the list of priorities. That's because their change in circumstances has altered their perception of things. Their responsibility for others has changed their perspective. You often see still another, another change as a person gets older and begins thinking about their life in light of death. Suddenly, again, depending on their values, they either jump back to the idea of personal enrichment again. They want to do something fun, something they enjoy since the time is short. Or they may begin to think about their family or ministry. Again, they realize the time is short, and so they begin to regret all those long hours they put in at the office trying to earn a paycheck instead of spending time with people. You know, it's the whole cats in the cradle thing, if you're familiar with that song. Point being, as they transition through these different stages of life, which change the way they see themselves, their priorities change as well. That's exactly what's happened with Paul also. And the thing that's changed his perspective is the resurrection. I'm pulling this more from the context than I am from the passage itself. That's because verses 12 through 16 are just a continuation of what Paul has said up in verses 1 through 11, meaning when he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, he's referring to what he said in verses 1 through 11 just as much as what he's saying down here in verses 12 through 16. And of course, what Paul set up in verses 1 through 11 is that he used to value one kind of thing. He used to value his status as an Israelite. He used to value his performance as a Jew. But he's given all of that away in order to have this righteousness that will enable him to be found in Christ and so participate in his resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul wants. This is the priority that shaped his life and even caused him to give everything away for the sake of the gospel. And friends, this is mature thinking. This is mature thinking. See, Paul isn't just thinking according to what is real and true. 
Meaning it's not only that Paul has matured by living in light of the resurrection as a historical event. He's also thinking according to what is wise. He's taking that event and he's allowing it to reshape his priorities. How is that expressed? You see it expressed up in verses 1 through 11 above. Paul is willing to suffer the loss of literally everything, even his own life, if need be, in order to gain Christ. In other words, Paul is playing the long game here. And this is part of what happens as you get older. You start thinking not just in light of what's right in front of you. You start anticipating the future as well, and you see your present in light of that. That's what Paul's doing. He's thinking in light of eternity. And he's allowing that to shape his understanding of the present. And so once again, what then is Paul's estimation of the present? Does he count his life dear to him in order to save it? Does he seek material gain or comfort? Does he seek the praise of men? No, he says he considers all those things lost for the sake of knowing Christ and participating in his resurrection. Do you understand here? Paul's hope isn't in this life. It's not here in this life. It's there in heaven with Christ. I like the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, do you hear that? He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's past tense. Paul doesn't think of the resurrection as a merely future reality. For him, the hope is so certain and the expectation is so palpable, it's like he's already there. There's a sense in which in Paul's mind, he's already been raised with Christ. And the result is exactly what you see taking place here. He travels the globe to share the gospel and he suffers loss for the sake of Christ. Because the resurrection has taught him that this is what matters. The advancement of the gospel, the salvation of immortal souls, not his personal comfort and not even his own life. There are many, many Christians who don't think this way. Don't get me wrong, they believe that the resurrection is true, and they may even want to participate in it, but when you look at their lives, it's apparent that they've not yet transformed their way of thinking about this life. You see it in what they express their hope in. You see it in the plans they make. They don't order their life according to the priorities established by the gospel, They don't consider this life lost. They don't think about how they can use this life for maximum impact for the kingdom, like what you see with Paul. Instead, they order it according to what they think is going to bring them the greatest amount of joy in the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. Their hope isn't in heaven. Their hope isn't in eternity with Christ. That's not what they get excited about, nor the conversion of the sinner. It's just a bunch of stuff here on earth. It's their plans for their career or their next vacation or from some type of home improvement that they're working on. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be excited by these things. I'm just saying that these aren't ancillary comforts for these Christians. It's their main source of joy. In fact, it's their main source of joy to the degree that they're either up or down based on how well their prospects for these things are going in their moment. If their hope is in their marriage, for instance, if it's in a relationship, then they're happy when their marriage is going well. And when it's not, they're downtrodden. Friends, this is immature thinking. This is like a child who values beauty in a companion because they don't understand what's really important in a relationship. If you're you're wondering why, for instance, Paul is going to say later on in chapter 4 that he's learned how to be content in each and every circumstance, it's because he doesn't think this way. He's ordered his life according to the priorities that are established in Christ. And so you can take away his freedom, take away his comfort, even take away his life, and he's unmoved. Or you can give him his freedom and give him his comfort, let him live. Still, his joy is at the same level. And why is that? It's because Paul doesn't value these things in the end. They neither make him excessively happy nor excessively sad because he hasn't placed his hope in them. They're not overly important to him. What's important to him is the resurrection and eternal life and being found in Christ so he can participate in eternal life. This is why Paul can rejoice when he's near death. It's why he can be delighted when people are trying to hurt him through the preaching of the gospel. It's because he's allowed his priorities to be transformed by Jesus Christ. And again, that's mature thought. That's right thinking according to what Paul knows about the resurrection. Even Paul's perspective on persecution, right? This idea that persecution is something to rejoice in because it's a sign of our union with Christ. That's the result of a mature theology. Is that your pattern of thought? Take a moment to take stock of your life and ask yourself, is it evident by my conduct that the resurrection is more important to me than anything else? Is it evident by my conduct that what matters to me, what's most important in my life, is what takes place in eternity? Are my priorities ordered according to what the gospel says is logically most important in life, or are they ordered by what I'm seeking here on earth? Think about your goals. Think about what you want to achieve in life. Think about your speech, the types of things you talk about with your friends and family. Think about what you get excited about and what discourages you. If those things don't look like what you're seeing here in Paul, if you don't see yourself sharing the same level of commitment, the same level of sacrifice, if you don't see yourself getting excited or discouraged by the same things, it isn't Paul that's wrong. It's you. You're an immature Christian. And it's around about time that you grow up. It's time that you stop thinking like a spiritual child and start thinking like an adult. I've entitled our series in Philippians, The Evangelistic Psyche. And the point of this series has been to learn how to adopt the thinking of an evangelist. 
think that's what we're seeing here in Philippians. We're seeing the mindset of Paul, the mindset of the evangelist. We're trying to learn how to think like him, how to follow his example. Well, I have to say, if there's one single obstacle to the advancement of the gospel today, it's not persecution. It's not any sort of worldly philosophy. It's half-hearted Christians. And I don't just mean that in the sense that half-hearted Christians don't share their faith, though there's certainly that. No, what I mean is that people cannot see Christ in us in the way that it's seen in a guy like Paul when we don't allow the gospel to transform the priorities of our lives. I like how Horatius Bonner says it in his book, The Words to the Winners of Souls. Bonner writes, Men cannot but feel that if religion is worth anything, it is worth everything. That if it call for any measure of zeal and warmth, it will justify the utmost degree of these. And that there is no consistent medium between reckless atheism and the intensest warmth of religious zeal. And you hear that? He says, even unbelievers can understand that if what we believe means anything, then it should radically transform our lives. There shouldn't be any in-between. We ought to be radically different because we're governed by an entirely different set of principles. Bonner continues, he says, Men may dislike, detest, scoff at, persecute the latter, that is the religious zealot. He says, yet their consciences are all the while silently reminding them that if there be a God and a Savior, a heaven and a hell, anything short of such a life is hypocrisy, dishonesty, perjury. Again, do you hear that? The unbeliever ought to come away with the impression that if what we believe is true, then they cannot but live any other way than how we live. It makes me think of a, a quote by the missionary Jim Elliott. Uh, Elliott died as a martyr slain by the uncontacted tribe that he tried to share the gospel with. He's the one who famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That sounds very Pauline, does it not? That's exactly what you find here in Philippians 3. So it probably shouldn't surprise us that Elliot shared a similar fate to Paul, surrendering everything, and then finally even giving his life for Christ. He was a mature Christian. Well, my favorite quote by Elliot is this one. He once wrote in his journal, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or, the, or another on facing Christ in me. This is what we need more of if the gospel is going to advance. We need crisis men and women, Christians who are so sold out to the gospel that the world cannot but be forced to decide which side they're on when they encounter them. Again, is this you? Are you a crisis man? Or are you a crisis woman? Are people forced to make a decision on seeing Christ in you? Has the gospel transformed your thinking to that degree? I don't even mean that you're perfect in your righteousness, but that you're at least striving to be conformed to Christ to the degree that it can't be denied. You believe this. If not, then it means that you are yet immature in your thinking. And you need to become mature. Mental attribute number two. 
ready to work. The mature Christian is ready to work. This attribute comes out in verse 12. Once again, Paul follows up this statement about attaining the resurrection of the dead. Quote, by any means possible, by saying, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So up in verses 9 through 11, Paul said he wants this righteousness, meaning in context, this type of conduct that comes from Jesus Christ so that he can be found in Jesus Christ and so participate in the resurrection from the dead. Can you follow me there? Paul wants the performance that points to the fact that Christ knows him and which gives him this hope that he's been raised with Christ in heaven. Now think about what Paul is saying here. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. That's a reference to this righteousness that Paul is seeking up in verse 9. I know I think I said uh, last week uh, that Paul's thinking about both the resurrection from the dead and the righteousness that points to this hope here. But I'll tell you on further examination, I think he's referring to the righteousness from verse 9 exclusively. Even the word for obtain in verse 12, that's different than the word for attain in verse 11. Verse 11, the word for attain is katantao, which means to come to or to arrive at. It's more about location than possession. Verse 12, the word is lambano, which means to take hold of or grasp or even seize. Verse 9, Paul says he wants to have this righteousness that points to his relationship with Christ. What he says here is that he's not yet taken possession of it. And the big idea seems to be that although Paul does have this hope of eternal life, he's not yet complete in his righteousness. And that's important to point out, by the way, because Paul is saying that his hope is grounded in the fact that he's being made like Christ. Well, if that means being exactly like Christ in all things, then none of us are ever going to have any confidence that we're in Christ because none of us are completely like him, not even Paul. So Paul balances out this hope that he's in Christ because he's being made like him by saying, but this isn't to say I've completed my sanctification. And then he continues, again, with respect to this righteousness. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The word here for press is dioko. It means literally to run after or to pursue in some contexts, it's even translated as persecute. For instance, Acts 22.4, as Paul describes his former life as a Pharisee, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. That gives you a sense, and the word there is dioko. That gives you a sense of this word. Just as Paul got letters from the high priest to hunt down Christians that had been scattered out of Judea into Damascus, he chased them down. That's the same attitude that Paul is bringing with respect to the resurrection. He's chasing it down. He's pursuing it with severe intensity. Now, Paul's careful to point out that he's not doing this by his own power in his flesh. He says that he runs this way, quote, because Christ Jesus has made him his own. So Jesus is still the source of his sanctification. Indeed, from the way Paul states this, it would even seem that it's 
the hope of being in Christ that's motivating him to run this way. In other words, there's, there's no bootstrap theology in this statement. Paul's righteousness is coming from Christ through faith in Christ. And yet that's not to say that it comes without any effort. This growth in Christ's likeness. You can sometimes see this attitude in the church, and it can be expressed in a couple of different forms. First, you have some people who say, well, since we're justified by the righteousness of Christ, then we don't really need to make any effort to be holy, since that would be justification by works. And all our hope is in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And second, you have other people, Reformed people, Calvinists, who just assume that because sanctification is given by God, then they don't really need to make any effort in their righteousness, since they'll become holy when God gets around to it. Now, I don't think they'd probably ever actually say that, but you see it come out when they give in to their emotions and act according to their feelings and sin over and over again, and then say, why won't God help me overcome this sin? They assume that God's involvement in sanctification means that holiness is achieved passively, without any kind of striving or effort. Both of these notions are a result of immature thinking. They are not shared by the Apostle Paul. With regards to this first group, this one that points to justification, Paul would say, yes, we are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ through union with Christ. But union with Christ doesn't only mean sharing in his inheritance. It isn't just a legal status. It means being joined to him by faith. And it includes this conformity into his person through the power that he provides. So yes, we do need to be holy because holiness is a sign of our union with Christ. And to this second group, the Reformed group, Paul would say, no, you do need to actively engage in your sanctification because that's part of what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. The experience of struggle is part of what it means to share in His sufferings. And it's even as you fight against your sin that you're drawn into closer fellowship with Him as you ask the vine to supply you with the nourishment you need to bear fruit. The idea is that sanctification is... Just isn't just something that happens to you passively. That's not a mature understanding of Christian doctrine. Again, you look here, and Paul believes that God is responsible for his sanctification. It's not something he's doing by his own strength, and yet he still strives to make this righteousness his own. His mind is engaged in the work, and he puts effort into it. I love this. I mean, the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in, the, in this passage is held in tension beautifully. So Paul is saying that he's laboring. And of course the big picture is that Paul is doing this so that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, Paul wants to be found in Christ because Paul wants eternal life more than anything else and eternal life comes from Christ. This means having this righteousness that Christ supplies. And since that entails suffering, this means work for Paul as a consequence. You understand what Paul is telling us? Is that perseverance isn't just something that happens to him. Perseverance is something he labors at. His mind is engaged in the work. And he pushes himself to endure by the strength that Christ supplies so that he can be found in him. In short, it isn't easy 
Yes, Jesus is the one that's giving Paul the strength to persevere, but that doesn't mean it's effortless or easy. To use an analogy, right? Jesus may be the one that enables Paul to bench 300 pounds. But that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't feel the weight when he presses against the bar. In fact, it doesn't even mean that Paul is just able to immediately bench 300 instantly. No, he still has to go to the gym and train and avail himself of all the resources that Christ has supplied for his strength. And it's only through these resources that Paul can be made strong. But again, Paul still trains. And as he trains, Christ enables the growth. And so eventually Paul can bench press 300. And he does it by the power of Christ, but he still feels the weight as he lifts the bar. That's the picture that Paul presents here. He's not yet at full strength. But he strives to grow into full strength through his suffering because, again, it says Paul grows and matures and looks more and more like Jesus, that he has this increased joy over the fact that he's going to participate with Christ in the resurrection. You know, when you were a child, there wasn't much that was asked of you. You didn't have to pay bills. You didn't have to prepare your own meals. You may not have even had to do your own laundry or clean up around the house. Everybody else did all that for you. And the result is that you got to spend a lot of your time in leisure. right? You had schoolwork, sure, but once it was all done, you got to play. In fact, if you really think about it, this is why kids spend so much of their time pretending. It's not because they don't have responsibilities. It's because they don't know how to do anything else. They lack the skill to. There's this desire to do real things without the ability, and so the only recourse they have left is just to pretend that they know how to do stuff. You know, mow the yard, go to work, run a home. As you get older, that starts to change. You grow in your abilities, and as you grow in your abilities, you grow in responsibility as well. And one of the things that you discover very fast as these responsibilities are placed on you, as people do less and less for you, is that all these things you once enjoyed so easily don't happen without effort. The reason why you always had clean laundry to wear or clean dishes to eat off of wasn't because they just magically cleaned themselves. No, it was because your mom or your dad was very intentional about setting aside a portion of his or her day to wash the clothes and clean the dishes. And without that very intentional, practical effort, you don't get to have clean clothes to wear, or clean dishes to eat off of. This is part of growing up, realizing that the things you enjoy in life are often the consequence of intentional engagement and effort. You want a degree, become the top in your field, then you better crack open a book. The information isn't going to just magically appear in your head on the exam day. You have to put it there, right? You have to study. You want a garden to enjoy in your yard, then you're going to have to start digging and you're going to have to get dirty and you're going to have to sweat a little. It's not going to happen by sitting on the couch. You have to go out and build it, make it. In fact, I think it's sort of funny, speaking of pretend. My kids love to pretend to build things. But once I ask them to help me, to hold the flashlight, or maybe even drive in a nail or two, 
they very quickly lose interest and go and do something else. They like the idea of building so long as it's easy. But as soon as they discover that it requires effort, they lose interest. That's part of growing up. Part of growing up is realizing that the things you enjoy in life are often the consequence of intentional engagement and effort. We happened to discuss this very point with our kids just this past Friday. We're currently going through Proverbs over breakfast because we're trying to teach them to become adults. And the Proverbs are really written for that purpose, to help the simple become wise. It's a great book to use to teach children about what it means to think like a mature individual. Well, Friday morning, one of the Proverbs we discussed was Proverbs 20:13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. The lesson was very simple. You want to eat, then you need to get out of bed and work for it. And we said it's the same for video games or television. You want a good-paying job or a well-ordered home, it's not going to happen by sitting on the couch. You have to get up and earn it. Friends, I know this probably sounds weird, but it's the same thing spiritually. And again, I know what you may be thinking. You're probably thinking to yourself, what, what are you talking about here? It sounds like you're preaching law here, Ryan. Where's the grace in this? We've conditioned ourselves to think that salvation means that we just get to kick up our feet and relax since God does all the work. But friends, this is immature thinking. What you see here in this passage is that Paul doesn't think that way. Yes, that is the prevalent attitude in the church today. We just receive everything passively. But ask yourself, do you think the church today is marked by mature Christians or immature Christians? Meaning, do you see a church that's filled with people who live according to the pattern that you see here in the Apostle Paul, or do you see something far, far less than that? The fact of the matter is that the church at large is filled with immature Christians, and it comes from immature thinking. So let me explain to you where the grace of God is and what I'm talking about. The farmer goes out to sow a crop. And after he sows the crop, God sends the rain and the sun that nourishes the crop and gives him a harvest. God doesn't produce the crop apart from the farmer's sowing. But neither does the farmer's sowing produce the crop. Instead, the farmer sows and God gives the harvest. Paul touches on this concept in a couple of other places. In fact, we talked about one of them just a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, with respect to giving. Paul says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Yes, God produces the fruit, but He produces it in response to the effort to sow. So let me put it this way. Supposing your thinking has been transformed by the gospel and you want to pursue spiritual things, eternal things. Say, for instance, you do want to become a mature Christian. Well, guess what that means? It means studying the Word of God. It means putting time and effort into it. It means denying yourself. Rejecting your feelings, your emotions, the next time you feel the desire to act out on one of your sinful impulses. 
and putting those desires to death with the promises of the gospel. Do you want spiritually mature children? It isn't going to just happen. You have to try for it. You need to pray. Yes, God must produce the growth, but you need to put effort into it. You need to spend time learning about how to be a godly parent and then intentionally apply those principles in your home. Do you want to see the gospel advance? Then you have to make the decision to share Christ with someone else and then put the effort in to do it. Romans 10, right? They're not going to hear without a preacher. God isn't going to do it without your involvement, without your striving. And so you're going to have to pay the price of the awkwardness and all that if you want to see the gospel advance. Can you see what I'm saying here? This is mature Christian thinking. Just as Paul realizes that he must press on to make this righteousness his own, and that includes all this enduring of suffering that he's experiencing for the sake of Christ, so also must you strive if you're going to see your growth in Christ take place. So your mind has been transformed by the gospel. Do you, do you share the same kind of priorities that you see here in Paul? If so, then you need to get ready to work as well. Now get ready to work in the strength that Christ provides, no doubt. I'm not saying do this by your own effort. You can't. Verse 9, this is a righteousness not of our own that comes from the law. It's the righteousness of God that depends on faith. But that doesn't mean it's easy or effortless either. It's still something you must strive for. And with that in mind, I want to close by doing something a little bit different this morning. Normally, at the end of the message, I'll go straight into prayer. And what I want to do this morning is this. I'm going to close. And then after I close, I want to give you a few moments to think about what's been said here this morning. Uh, I'll warn you up front, it'll probably feel longer than what it should. <laughs> okay? Um, it's because I don't want to rush you. I want to give you some time to, to really think. So I'll try to wait maybe a full minute. And what I want you to do during that time, and by the way, a minute feels a lot longer than what it really is. Um, but and what I want you to do during that time is just, is just spend some time in prayer asking God to help you identify where you need to grow as a Christian. None of us are completely mature in our thinking, so spend time asking God to help you take stock of your life and see if you can maybe identify one or two areas where your priorities may not align with Paul's priorities. After a minute or so, I'm going to close this with prayer. After that, we'll respond to this morning's message and song, and then we'll receive the Lord's table together. As I mentioned last week, the Lord's table reminds us of our union with Christ. It reminds us that we share both in His resurrection and His death. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, it should be a reminder to us that we've been called out of the world to live like Christ in every respect. Well, part of what this union means, of course, is that Christ also supplies us with the strength we need to be like Him. And so after we've identified a couple of these areas to grow in, what I want you to do at the Lord's table is then ask God to help you identify what you need to do to grow in that area of your walk. Again, by the strength that He provides. So can, can you guys see what I'm getting at here? First, we're simply going to identify where we need to grow. And then second, you're asking God to help you understand how you're going to grow in it. And then after the Lord's table, I'll just say a brief prayer, asking God to supply us with the strength we need to engage 
in those aspects of our walk this week. Does that sound good? Let's go ahead and do that now. Bow your head with me and let's...